On this episode, Bill Murray, 180 Degrees South, Mountain Lions, and Hunting Around in the Woods, Trying to Be Quiet. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. On today's episode, we have Tyler Emmett, outdoorsman, cinematographer, cameraman. So why don't you do a much better job of introducing yourself than I just did? Yeah, I'm Tyler Emmett. I um, am a cameraman who has always just strived to work in an outdoor space, but not like still photographer or have crazy accounts or all this, but just always had a uh, figure that being a cameraman or a camera person could get you a life in the outdoors, a career in the outdoors. Which came first, the passion for the outdoors or the passion for camera? Like, or like you know. Um, I was raised. Uh, I was raised in like a very outdoor family. My my dad and and also my mom were always having us. You know, I was raised near the beach and. So I was just, that was kind of my babysitter was outside. And um, I don't know, like in the whole Rambo, Terminator, Chuck Norris era of growing up, we, and like skateboarding, we, and surfing, we got video cameras, like, you know, for a family trip. And my brother and I would make fight movies and stuff. So it just kind of was like, we were just outdoors messing around. And we just, you know, also had a camera. And then I was like, oh, wow. And then my, my brother-in-law, or now brother-in-law, but was in the dating scene then. He's older. I'm the youngest of four. He was like, he was going to school for, for you know, cinema. And, and I had always thought that, like, you know, you could do, you know, you could be a lawyer, a doctor, or a tradesman or whatever. But, like, it didn't equate to me, even though I grew up in Southern California, that that was, like, a, a viable career that wasn't for, you know, there was no Instagram or ever then, so for outdoor wise, but even just like to make movies, it didn't seem like a uh, a normal career. But then my my brother in law or now brother in law was like, "Yeah, I'm going to school." I'm like, "Whoa, you can do that!" And so it just kind of parlayed. But I think uh, to answer your question, Sperry, it was first and foremost was being outside, and then you know as the career progressed, it was always I was lean that way. Anytime I could be on a job that got me into the woods or into the ocean or you know, not in a soundstage, I'm always going to, you know, take that turn. Well, and then, you know, I'm looking at your, uh, your IMDb page and, and, you know, the cool thing is you're part of, I think one of the greatest adventure documentaries ever, certainly in recent years. And that was 180 degrees South. You want to talk about how you ended up on that and your role in that, in that film? Um, yeah. Uh, I was young, you know, that was what, 2007. I mean, I think it says on IMDb 2010, but as you know, as documentary filmmakers, it takes several years to make those and get them released and all that. But um, so I think it was fall 07 and I was 24 and I'd just been, I'd been working for Quicksilver, you know, surf clothing company uh, for several years on there. They had a surf charter exploration boat called the Quicksilver Crossing. And I was a deckhand on that. I got growing up in a surf community of, you know, Santa Barbara County area, I got a job as a deckhand for like a summer promotion tour of Eastern Seaboard. 
and wide-eyed and I had worked commercial fishing before that so I had a little bit of a, a boat background and um, we did the eastern seaboard it was supposed to be a two-month job and then it turned into like two and a half two years a little over two years and um, I met a bunch of camera guys on that boat because it would be like Quicksilver athletes coming to surf and and I kind of became like a whatever, the skiff driver, camera assistant to some legendary surf filmers like Sonny Miller and Jeff Hornbaker and Tony Roberts, Sonny Miller, there's some, you know, old legendary people that I was exposed to. And then that ended and my, I'd grown up in the Ventura Santa Barbara area. Um, my dad was an old mountaineer from the seventies and he was friends with a couple of the old timers in the Ventura Santa Barbara uh, outdoor community who were like Rick Ridgeway and Yvonne Chouinard. And so I was kind of raised around them and they were looking for a no pay boat experienced cameraman, <laughs> not no pay completely, but like, you know, next to no pay. Cause they were raising money for this movie. And, and I sent a really shaky surf video from like Vancouver Island or whatever. And hoped, hoped and prayed that like, you know, it's a little bit of nepotism and uh, goodwill would, get me in there. And then I, because of the boat experience, I think I got in with them. I went on, we went and scouted the sailboat before, if you guys are familiar with the movie, but we scouted the sailboat in Seattle and it was like a rant, not a random guy, but this guy, Alan, who was a Chilean, Amer you know, his dad was American, mom Chilean, and he was buying this sailboat to, to sail down to Chile. So we're going to scout the boat as a, as a, a kind of a path for the characters to sail to Chile to recreate the whole uh, mountain of storms, you know, whatever the, the, the narrative of one a South and hit it off, met Chris and Chris Malloy, the director and reconnected with Rick after not seeing him since I was younger. And, and then they brought me on kind of last second. I think there was probably some budgetary confinements or some other camera guys who didn't want to leave uh, actual careers for months, months on end. So I, so I got involved in that way as a very like wide-eyed green 24, 25 year old. And um, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of it. And then Jeff Johnson, who's the main character in the film, him and I were like just the two of us for majority of the movie. I mean, the movie on screen is, you know, predominantly Chilean Patagonian climbing and that whole, obviously the main, you know, important narrative, but the time spent was really Jeff, Johnson and I on a sailboat going from well, a car from Santa Monica to Mexico, you know, mainland Mexico and then Mexico, Easter Island and dismasted or demasted at sea and stuck on Easter Island. You know, that whole thing was four months. And then the chilly part of the movie was two, you know, so it was a, it was a, it was an amazing, you know, it was all downhill from there. No, I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> it was an amazing start. And I, the people I got to meet and work with, you know, cameramen and producers and, you know, athletes or just people and, you know, not even just the people on the movie, but the whole way down, you know, just on a, you know, everywhere. It was, uh, it was a, it was an amazing, amazing six or six or seven months. I think I was on that. So yeah, that's my 180 South kind of rambling backstory. <laughs> well, it was very funny when I was doing research for this, you know, the first thing you do is you go to Instagram and I yep. didn't even make it three levels down until I saw the ugly mug of Jason Boffa, who's a very old friend of mine who I actually went to film school with. 
and who you have worked with amazing. on uh, on many on many of his films. He's an amazing yeah. kid. He's an amazing guy. A really awesome person. Oh yeah. But he's Sincere made some beautiful friend. surf films. Uh, very soulful. All sort of about longboarding um, over the years. And you've been yes. on most everything he's done now. That now, looking at the looking at your credits. His you know recent actually right after One A South or not right after soon thereafter, our crew started to like get commercial work from the documentary or whatever. And I was, you know, I was the kind of scrub young buck in the crew. And uh, Batha was brought on by the Danny Motor, the DP of 1A South for a big Ford commercial that the director of 1A South did. And I met him and we were just like, I don't know, fast buddies, kind of similar uh, sense of humor and um, and love of uh, old fashions after a long day work. And, and um yeah we just have just we did a couple documentaries and a bunch of commercial work together and we kind of have a fun working relationship and yeah he's and just he's like you know all-time friend of mine as was at my wedding and the whole thing and yeah jason's awesome he's uh one of a kind full disclosure i did hit him up to be on the podcast last year and he agreed but i uh i still have yet to follow up i think it'd be it'd be best to do like an in-person round table with Jason and I, and we could just talk story. And, <laughs> you know, he was like, I used to call him for a while. We were on such a run of work, travel work together. I called him uh, my location wife and Severia. I'm, I'm borrowing that from <laughs> our uh, mutual yeah. friend, uh, EJ Masisco, uh, yeah. who Paul works with all the time. He always says uh, location wife. Cause we're spent as camera people. We spent a lot of time on the road. So like your, your, your coworkers, more than even being good at their job have to be like kindred spirits and bros because if it if it isn't for that you'd go crazy being away from your family and normalcy if you just don't have the good people with you you know definitely no that is true story there um we're so tied normally um you're based in southern california but you've been up in the northwest for a little bit um but you've also been traveling a ton with your latest show uh meat eater tell us about that i'm super okay so like there's a couple things so like one i want to hear about that then i also i need to hear about the mountain lion that was posted in your stories so two things so Um, tell about meat eater and then i need to hear about the mountain lion yeah what is meat eater first of all because i so meat eater it's a it's a netflix show um it's a hunting show but it's you know not like trophy like cecil lion hunting show it's like kind of a hunt to eat conservation ethos like protectors of public land um cooking show i know that's a long tagline i don't know i didn't like i should really look up what they said on the website but um it's uh yeah it's huge huge um huge audience or you know in the kind of hunting fishing uh but which is a huge part of the outdoor space and has you know but so how i got involved with them is just through uh, you know, the, the, the run of the, not run of the mill, but just the nature of the business I'm in that you just meet one person and get brought on this job. But years ago I did a documentary about the main character on the show and, and which was, it's called stars in the sky. Um, it's kind of a hunting, just a hunting story. And they interview kind of both sides of the debate with, uh, you know, like not, you know, animal rights people to hunt to eat people and try to like kind of adjust the PR, whatever stars in the sky it's a, it's it's a very cool documentary but then 
in end of 2019, they reached back out to me and we're looking for a camera, more camera people. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's a cool, it's been really cool because it's not a, a space or it's another way of being in the outdoors that I'm not familiar with prior to being on the show or working on the show. And I mean, some of the, the best woodsmen, outdoorsmen people are hunters and fishermen and anglers. And, um, but yeah, it's taken me to Wyoming and you get to the, and Colorado and Alaska and Arkansas and Wisconsin and Minnesota and ice fishing and all kinds of different, um, fun adventures and, and all, you know, the hosts and the people that, you know, we go and hunt or fish with are all just folks that are trying to like love the outdoors and, and, you know, even though they're harvesting an animal, you know, some people may think that's, you know, not, you know, not their thing that are in the outdoor space. They're some of the most ardent, like environmentalists and, uh, outdoors people that I've ever come across in my, you know, whole years of whatever working and just playing in the outdoors. But, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a fun show. It's hiking around the woods, being real quiet, which is hard as a camera person. Cause you're, and it's a one man band, you know, you're doing sound, you're doing, you're just on your own. It's like one, you and Hunter. And, um, yeah, we get, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun and it's been a great, covid friendly um pursuit because it's not like a 20 people on set breathing on each other it's you and one guy in the woods which is pretty covid proof um so it's it's been a great great little run and and um yeah that's kind of yeah meat eater but it's it's a great show steve ranella and Giannis Patelis, they're and they have like a podcast you know uh meat eater podcast and and uh yeah they're good folks it's always Stoked recommended up. to me Stoked. in my Netflix queue. It's always like, you might like this. Yeah. And again, like, <laughs> I have no problem with hunting. I eat cheeseburgers. So I feel like it would be pretty hypocritical to be against people actually harvesting it in that way. It's just yeah. not for me. But uh, yeah, I've, I've always, I've, I know it's good. I've had friends even recommend it to me. So so now that I've talked to you, I'll, I'll have to watch it. So, so now tell us about this mountain lion. <laughs> uh, well, this was actually a cool uh, episode. And there's like the main Netflix show and then on their uh, YouTube channel that also goes to like Sportsman's Network, I think. They have a lot of like their sub hosts do their own kind of, you know, spinoffs. But um, we went up to about an hour outside of Spokane in I think it's Ponderay County. And there's the mountain lions. There's a lot of mountain lion um how to describe this, the mountain lion people interaction is, is becoming, you know, a problem. And, and there's, you know, farmers and ranchettes and, you know, people who just have two llamas and three goats and these mountain lions are coming in and kind of killing, killing house pets. And, um, when that happens, you usually have to euthanize the mountain lion, trap them, euthanize them. And that's a shame because it's like, we are the ones that are, creeping into their habitat and have messed with for hundreds of years, messed with game populations and what they're hunting. And so we, you know, we, we understand it on it's exactly what we've done to all animals, you know, migratory and predatory patterns, but we did this piece or, and it's coming out, I don't know when it'll come out in six months or so, but, um, on this biologist, um, in Washington, 
uh, works for the state, and then a couple of these guys who are sanctioned by the, they're part of the predation crew that when a mountain lion kills your llama, you call this hotline. It's, you know, the sheriff's, it's a sheriff hotline. And these guys come and help you out. And there's also wolves are repopulating the area. And, but the, the study is they tr they're trying to see if they can haze mountain li these mountain lions that are coming into, I mean, there was one that was like, you know, tr tracking 200 yards from a KOA, like Boy Scout camp. You know, like, oh, that's not that rad. Like a big ass, big, sorry, I'm swearing. But uh, big mountain lion. So what they do, the study is they trank them. I don't know how they do the study. They trank this, the mountain lion and put a, you know, a GPS collar on them. And then once a week, they try to do a couple of series of hazing measures to see if they can push these mountain lions out of an area. And they kind of prove that scientifically through data and just information. And um, so we, we just kind of rode along with them for a few days. And as they checked in on, I think they have seven or six or seven tagged at a time. And they, they use for hazing, they use noise and they use paintball guns just to like and, and they have hound dogs which is the traditional way that people have hunted you know mountain lions and bears and raccoons you know they have hounds you know like you know barking up the wrong tree etymology kind of comes from hounds treeing these animals so we tree a mountain they, they, they release the hounds and that's you know another good old term release the hounds and tree a mountain lion Trank them, put a GPS collar on them. But as we we were checking in on the three different mountain lions on three days that uh, were you know either going to get their collar taken off or get hazed a little bit um, or get a new collar put on or measure so, some sort of scientific data was being taken from each of them. But it was uh, it was pretty all time. I mean, just to interact. I mean, to interact with uh alive i mean obviously tranquilized but um uh we had three oh no two two of the three days we had like a tranquilized mountain lion that you know severia was saying that i had pictures of on my instagram is i don't know how anybody in their right mind could not take a selfie of themselves with sitting with a tranquilized mountain lion it's it's it was it was pretty cool but um so so hopefully the um, their study kind of works out and is supposed to have a euthanized. I mean, I think in the last five years in the tri-county area of like Spokane, Ponderay, and whatever the third county is, I can't remember off the top of my head, they have had to uh, euthanize like 300, I mean, a big number, and I'm probably misquoting it, but like 305 years. So that's, that's something's not, you know, lining up there. So, so if this study can be proven and then it can be used in other states and you know each state's kind of game management is on its own uh and like fish and wildlife is all kind of independent so if that can be used as a study that teaches people hey we can just kind of scare them away a little bit as opposed to having to you know preventative maintenance as opposed to having to kill them when they bite your goat or you know so yeah that was that was a it should be a kind of an interesting episode and it, there was no you know it's a hunting show but we didn't there was no killing of any animal. It was, you know, just... And, and no scrubbing. eating of the animal. No eating, no eating. <laughs> it was just all science and interviews and kind of more your traditional... I think it'll be more of a traditional like, talking head kind of interview episode. But Very cool. But it was fun. It was really a lot of fun. And the second day we had a 
the second day we were just supposed to haze the mountain lion and the dogs kind of got after it and we're tracking it, looking for it. And we're in this kind of, most of the, the forest we were in was pretty uh, dense, you know, lower shrubs, lower bushes, thick bushes. We we're kind of chasing dogs through and we get into this kind of taller ponderosa area with the understory is really clear and the, the biologist is looking at his GPS and he's like, this mountain lion, because the mountain lion had a GPS collar on it, this mountain lion is is look up in the sky, up in, in the trees. It's in one of these trees, and we're all looking up. And I just start rolling video on our mate, the host of the show. He's kind of looking up, you know, just getting a nice wide shot of the pretty landscape, you know, him doing his thing. And out of a little fallen timber, about 20, 20 feet to my left, and in frame, the mountain lion was hiding, in non tranquilized. Obviously, he's running for her life. Just book, books out of this fallen timber patch and right by the host and just books it into the woods and i swear to god i my heart and all of it was so shit and oh my god and we sprint after it and the dogs are after it and, it's, and hounds if you know like what eight hounds sound like it's the most chaos you can have in the, in, in the outdoor space you know it's we're used to hiking on a trail and it's quiet and this is just you know and they're just freaking out because they're on our scent and the, the mountain lion goes 45 feet up into a tree. And it was during the, that heat wave we had in the Pacific Northwest a month ago or so that, you know, it was just the beginning of it. It was like 90 something degrees. And this poor cat is just panting, you know, and so we called the dogs back and all went back to the truck and, you know, gave her her space or whatever. So there was some hazing there that happened, but it was the, I, we also got a little hazed. I was a little bit, and you know, you're kind of looking through your, your eyepiece on your camera and this like deadly beast. <laughs> I mean, it felt like a, like, what was the movie with Michael Douglas or whatever, you know, uh, I don't know. It's the ghost in the darkness. It was like, wow, yeah, they go mountain lion run. Yeah, Val Kilmer. Yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah. Totally. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a fun, it was like a three or four day shoot, but just, a really cool thing that you know you'd only get to do if you were working on some random show like like i was you know it's really cool sounds a little sounds a little scary actually what is what is hazing you talked about hazing well hazing i mean i always think of hazing as like some frat boy like awful thing right, right? but <laughs> but um hazing meaning like you're kind of spooking them out like okay this isn't if you come here that there's going to be hounds or Somebody hitting you with a paintball gun or a paddle, some, a paddle, not, you you know, a paddle. exactly right, okay, like something okay. that says like SAE on it. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. I wouldn't want to get that close to okay, a mountain yeah, lion, no. but, um, but, uh, but, and then they were actually funny podcast, uh, metal podcasting. They were used, they're trying to see if also just loud, they would have had a big Bluetooth speaker and were just pumping the mediator podcast just around when they get close to them just to see if just like human voices could and then they would take the data whether it was human voices paintball dogs you know like what what worked the best to kind of and then track their data for weeks afterwards to see if okay i'm incrementally pushing this animal back or if you they know. go oh those are those mediator guys get them yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> exactly right it looks like a snack but revenge yeah yeah <laughs> I don't have hound dogs. I have labradoodles. And, and one of our dogs, <laughs> Farley, I think wishes he was a hound dog, you know, hazing a mountain lion whenever he sees a squirrel. That's sort of like he is so yep. mellow and chill. But if he sees a squirrel, he goes totally ape. And, but I mean, uh, both of those breeds, 
are hunting dogs. I mean, you have, I know it's been highly yeah, domesticated and hermetically sealed, but yeah. they're both, I mean, <laughs> the, yeah, like a poodle, you know, poodle pointers and yeah. French poodles. Those are all just, I mean, I have a, um, I have a nine-year-old German shepherd and a, a nine-month-old Labrador wire-haired pointing griffin, which is actually a true like hunting dog. And this wow. the innate, the innate like, um, the, what they want to do is, I don't know, chase and kill animals, whether it's a moth or a, you know, it's what they want to do. It's like, if, if left to their own devices, all dogs would, most dogs would do that. So I think your Labradoodles, oh, if you let them free, they would chase something up a tree, you know? As yeah. I, I always method. wonder though, so far they haven't caught anything. And that's my fear. It's like, good. That's what good. Do? <laughs> I think that's good. That's good though. Cause you don't want any like weird rabies on your, your, uh, yeah, exactly. Dog. You know, yeah. Vet bills are pretty insane. I was on a hike a couple weekends ago up in the San Gorgonia wilderness here. And one of our friends, we all had our dogs. Um, and one of them has a plot hound and he's, and he yep. was actually up ahead of us. Cause his dog, we had like two little dogs. Anyways, his dog was dragging him up the trail and they saw a bear go by and the dog started baying and was like barking and bang. And I can't even imagine eight. Like the one oh, yeah. was so loud that I can't oh, imagine yeah. having eight hounds like that. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, plots are like reason. some of the best, you know, treeing dogs. We did a Arkansas episode of uh, nighttime hunting raccoons in the snow. It was in that. Uh, remember the South Texas and Arkansas had the craziest winter storm this year, like in February. We did a episode, and it was three or four plot hounds treeing raccoons in the middle of the night, and we just did nothing. You just like let your dog, the dogs go. And all those plot hounds wanted to do was, you know, scent and tree. And it just, that was their, I mean, they're, that's all they do. They're working dogs. You know, they're not you know, our dogs or family dogs, but I can imagine them seeing a bear, your friend's dog seen a bear. It's like, yeah, that's, you bought a plot hound. Like, yeah, that's a <laughs> no. part of the, part so of no, the deal. Yeah. So, no. And he knows. <laughs> so no, and I would think though, I, I would think that Betty would be a pretty good bear dog. Right. <laughs> Betty could care less. Oh, actually I have a Betty story. I'll share okay. the little huntress. Um, she was barking in the back patio last night and I went out and there was a tiny baby possum, like the size of my hand uh -huh. and she would bark and it would snarl and she would bark and it would snarl. But she would like, it, it was tiny and she was too scared to like attack it. She just barked at it. She was like, <laughs> it was very sad. Urban living, yeah. urban living. So we brought yeah, her inside yeah. and let the little baby go on uh, its way. I can't imagine. Betty's a very sweet dog. I can't imagine her attacking a bear or a baby possum. <laughs> and, and of course, now we're, this means we're going to have to have a, a photo of Betty in the show notes so that everyone has a point of yes, reference. Yes, exactly. Preferably treeing a bear. Preferably yes. Betty yeah, treeing, treeing a, bear. a bear. We'll get Photoshop. Right we'll Photoshop that up. We'll, we'll, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Tyler. So tell me a little bit. I mean, I guess carrying these cameras for shows and, and film and whatnot, are, are you carrying them? I mean, that sounds like a lot of weight and a lot of gear. Yeah. Like, like how much is all this way? Like, what does the setup look like? And, and how does that um, add complexity? Because you know, you're outdoors, right? Well, keeping cameras dry um, is always, you know, the number one dry and moisture and dirt is always a, the, the biggest battle in the outdoors. But um, the, we have a, uh, on this show, we have a pretty, pared down where you have a Sony FS5, which is pretty lightweight. Um, but you know, lightweight, I mean, it's still like awkward and, and heavy. And, you know, a lot of times you're carrying your own food and sleeping equipment and change of clothes and all that, you know, warm stuff and puffies. And so 
and extra batteries for a couple days out in the field. And um, so it's, it's definitely, you know, my wife always jokes when I come home from like a nine day shoot, she's like, where's my like tough mountain man. Cause I come back and like sleep for 36 hours and like whine cause I'm tired and sore, but um, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot to, you know, some jobs are mellower. Some of them are always, you know, every job's different. Sometimes you're staying every night at a, at a ranch and, going off in a, a gator or something, you know, like a quad or something, but a good majority of them are, are, you know, you're out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, maybe you have some charging capability and yeah, just trying to keep them dry, you know, like work you doing ice filming, ice fishing, for example, when it's negative something outside the, the like fishing tent, but then inside you have a buddy heater, and so you're trying to like deal with fogging lenses as you're going from negative 10 to whatever they heat it up to in a little tent back and forth as you know, they're getting fish on the ice and out. So this, there's just, there's each job presents its own kind of uh, challenges as far as keep, you know, I've definitely, you know, drowned a couple cameras over the years and whether it's in a surf world or in the kind of normal, you know, mountain, mountain hunting or backcountry variety of filming where you're you know it, the rain kicks on and you think you have it pretty covered up and then there's moisture on the inside that drips into the fan and you're like uh-oh you know and you just kind of pivot and maybe you have a backup one or you know it's just all that kind of everything you can prep so long but then when you're in the backcountry or in the water or whatever it's shit goes wrong like way more often than it does if you're in a you know and you know it goes wrong if you're on a on a sound stage in LA and then you can just imagine how much it goes much more goes wrong if you're you know living out of your backpack and trying to eat a kind bar when it starts to piss rain and oh shit like I don't have oh my god trying to get yourself warm and then your the camera's on the ground and I don't know, a dog runs, you know, there's so many variables. I mean, we did this one shoot and it was a mule deer, meteor deer again, a mule deer, a snow one, and we were in Wyoming. God, uh, kind of near the Utah-Wyoming border and, you know, way deep in the backcountry, went there on a, a kind of mule train, horseback, and the other two camera guys and I, we all would split up every day and go with our respective people and we'd like regroup in the tent, at, or the wall tent at the end of the night, like, What'd you break? And it was just some camera, you know, like <laughs> everything XLR, this. And we're just by the end of the eight or nine days, it was just like tape. And we had backup stuff, but just you just limp through to the end. But you get the car, you get the media at the end, and editors hopefully can just piece something together. You know, it always seems to work out. Yeah. No, I also like. I. It's funny. I see people like, like you know, chastise other like people that shoot online for breaking gear and breaking equipment. I'm like, I don't know how Dude. you do anything outdoorsy. I mean, I've killed two bodies, you know, three or four lenses and I'm, I'm not even doing stuff as intense as you are, you know, I mean, and it's like, you just can't not, you, there's just no way to be out in those elements and not destroy it's, gear and you buy your oh gear God. to use it. So like, why would you, what, you're just going to exactly. keep it in the Pelican case, you know, instead of actually yeah. just carry it in the pelican case and not take it out and use it i mean that's just a ridiculous notion yeah you know? it's impossible like, I mean, you do your best you do your best to and just keep backups and you know have your little systems and you know learn from your mistakes and just keep going forward you know that's really all you can do i mean we 
I've been on big, you know, like second unit Hollywood stuff and broken just thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff. And you're just like, that's what insurance is for. And you're not going to just be negligent and be bad about it. But like, also when you're running after somebody or trying to keep up with the director's vision or whatever it is, Hey, you're just, you're trying to get, get the job done. And sometimes maybe a lens mount breaks or water gets in the front element or whatever stuff, you know, you, you just try to know, have it learn from your own experiences to try to minimize damage. It's really all you can do. Well, it's smart to shoot with that FS five. Cause you can buy like 10 of them for the cost of like an airy or a, you know, yeah. or a red yeah, Epic. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, oh, we killed another one. Let's just buy another one and, and go yeah, out on exactly. the next shoot. And by the and time you're done, did, it's we... about the same cost as if you were to buy, yeah, it, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think they've, they've been upgrading to, it's also for the most part in that show, that camera comes in handy and all those Sony's and now they're on like the FX six and stuff is battery life. Because and that compressed 4K because you can't you can't do that show shooting on red or or a mini because it's just too power hungry and I mean you could periodically you could do a couple episodes here and there where you do it on a more cinematic camera with heavier you know better glass and that but if you're on your own humping in the woods you want like you want a 120 minute battery life or whatever those bricks have on there because and they're better this big and not better you know like can fit in your palm of your hand and not like some you know anton bauer or b-lock battery that lasts for how it's just it's just a it's a power deal i mean that's truly why i think and you know it's it's funny because netflix has all these 4k delivery specs but they're pretty nimble with it if there's a fan base for their show i mean you look making of a murder it was like shot on dv tape you know it's like yeah. if there's a story i mean they, they i think they say that so that people spend more money on their pitch reel or something but yeah. if there's an audience for it um no it is funny know. i i i just shot a doc and uh like i made sure that the camera we use an fx9 i'm like i'm making sure whatever i shoot with is on that list because you know if you, yeah if you hope to go there and I, I don't know the other streaming services but if you want to make yeah. an outdoor doc just know that netflix and these services have yeah pretty strict uh tech guidelines and you if you shoot with the wrong camera and it's funny you'd think a lot of cameras that shoot 4K aren't on their list, and you know they're. Oh yeah, because it's compressed 4K yeah. and you know UHD and all that stuff. I can I haven't looked at it in a while, but um, but yeah, it's it's I'm kind of I'm thankful because I mean we because the whole that we stream we've streamlined it and it's it's a different kind of workflow and all that. But it's um, when you're by yourself and you've been up, you know, you're working from four to eleven p.m. and you're just like eating some chow and getting in the rack you're not wanting to like you know you're thankful for like lightweight and nimble and maybe yeah. some compressed video you know it's yeah. it, it looks good you know what do you uh what do you do what do you guys do for lenses but the main lens is that sony whatever it's like a 18 to 110 it's kind of a servo-y zoom is, is it the cine they're sending that one cine yeah okay i yeah. think it's eight, 18 to 110 yeah and then have some primes, you know, just like still primes with the Sony mount, just for, you know, the one for the you know lower light. And that's what's cool about the FX6s now is they have that low light sensor because mm -hmm. so much of the hunting time of day is pre-dawn. You know, it's like it, you know the animals are are doing their thing when it's you know right before the sun comes up and in that twilight time. So if you're shooting on an F4, you're like kind of bummed out. 
Yeah, well, when people don't realize how it's how magical is it that you can shoot like clean, you know, four thousand ISO. I mean, not everyone's yeah, gonna get what I'm talking about, but it's actually really impressive how clean sure. and good it looks. This is like twenty, thirty years ago, you couldn't do that. You know, I mean, no, no, no. Film used to be one hundred to four hundred, and now these digital cameras shoot base like their base ISO, meaning the minimum is like four thousand. It's crazy how yeah. how good they they operate in low light. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty yeah. neat. <laughs> It's very helpful, especially in the outdoors when you're just all na- all available light. You know, you're not carrying. We're not carrying anything. We carry a little like panel, but it looks. And you're doing headlamps, and half of the brands of the headlamps have a flicker. So, you know, there's just yeah. stuff like that that you're kind of, which people probably don't even notice in the two second cut when they watch it on TV. <laughs> but you're sitting there and you're, and you're just barely had one sip of coffee, and you're like, God damn, this flicker. I don't know. You know, you're trying to like <laughs> yeah. make a Rembrandt in the yeah. woods when you just like have like your heart, arm tied behind your back. But you know, you just just trying to entertain people with a couple of couple of moving images, really. Yeah. Well, what what what, what like advice would you have as someone that's obviously worked extensively and in incredibly difficult shooting in outdoor conditions? What what recommend recommendations do you have for people that want to shoot an adventure film or being even tougher than say just playing trail conditions? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I feel like it's an attitude thing. I mean, as I said before, when you're, you're, uh, you know, you're, you always, it's such a collaborative thing we do, um, work in filming or shooting stills or whatever, when you're outside, it's always, it's not just, although you're saying somebody wants to make a documentary on their own, but you're always filming somebody or something. And so I think like an attitude of just not getting too bummed, you know, too bummed out. That sounds so dumb, but in cliche, but it's going to be hard, but it's kind of all part of the fun is, is just kind of gritting and bearing it a little bit. I don't know. Just roll with it as it goes because you got no control over anything. You know, you, you think you have the weather forecast and you're like, Oh, it's not going to rain next week. So let's bring less rain weather gear or whatever for the cameras or just bring, you know, bring it all if you can carry it, but just roll with it. I think that's all I would say. It's really cliche and basic, but just roll with what what is thrown at you because that's kind of what i've done and keeps working slightly this might be a loaded question um and i won't i won't tell anybody if they don't watch the podcast hi but do you um do you sort of prefer the you know meat eater in it like going for an adventure kind of filmmaking versus the big hollywood you know multiple cameras multiple crews all that kind of stuff do you have one that um, you prefer over the other? I, I definitely prefer working in the woods for sure. I mean, there's things that I haven't, you know, I, I was kind of in and out of, well, that's how I know Severia is Paul and I were, were camera assistants together, Hollywood style for a long time. Um, but the, the I definitely 100% prefer, prefer the outdoor uh, style of filming and just, just one man band and, kind of or you know not even one man band but just the outdoor crew and just being in the woods and that and that on the beach but the um the the professionalism and the way that at least Elizabeth with the crew that I was have been with in my Hollywood uh production camera you know cinematography local 600 world they're they're just so pro and the stuff that I've learned from them and I've brought to the outdoor world is is some is it, I think it, it sets me like I, I kind of I, I went from 180 South and then I got in as like a camera loader on a, on commercials and on movies and I feel like what I've 
at the time I was like, oh, I should be, you know, and it was like right before Instagram kind of started, I should be like becoming an outdoor, like strictly, you know, outdoor filmer. But I went the like Hollywood route for years and it, I feel like it, I learned so much about just proper camera work and proper assistant work and just kind of the stuff I learned from that group of people and will continue to learn and is so there's something about that that I, I will not I know I'm still I'm not like never going to go do that work ever again I, I definitely prefer the outdoor work but that Hollywood you know there is kind of the the oh it's you know a bunch of BS and waiting for actors and this and that but the local 600 camera bros that I have is is the professionally and friendship wise is one of the best parts of my career, I would say. So I'm torn in a way, but I feel like a hundred percent, I've always wanted to do outdoor and prefer doing that. But, uh, it's nice to get called back to that Hollywood world to do the outdoor stuff. So you can actually make some, you know, proper money. And but, the benefits, um, the IATSE benefits don't suck either. So <laughs> yes, exactly. And they've been, uh, I've been like not doing as much union work, uh, recently, but they've actually been, um, I mean, it's kind of happened nicely because of COVID because you have to do so many hours to qualify for all the medical, but they've been pretty lenient for the, for everybody, which has been awesome. So yeah, the insurance is great. And my wife's like included for cheap and yeah, you take, you can't take that for granted. It's like, well, it's, it's the golden handcuffs of, of Hollywood is the, is the health insurance. It's so fantastic. But, um, but yes, that's a long winded answer. Sveria, but, uh, I prefer the outdoor work for sure. But, and like I was a camera assistant on in Hollywood. So you're kind of serving someone else's creative vision. Whereas when you're like one dude in the woods, you're framing it up and filming the show, you know, you're the, you're the camp DP of the show or the, you know, B operator, whatever you are on, on the show. But, so yeah, I, I prefer the outdoors and, but I, I love, I do love, have a, a big love for that part of my life and that, you know, part of my profession. So Tyler, speaking of the outdoors, perhaps, uh, you've got, let's imagine that you've got two weeks off from any project that you're, you're working on or any gig. Uh, how do you spend it? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Just like anything, right? Yeah, go for it. Um, I'd probably do week one, especially because I've, uh, in the last year and a half, moved to uh, kind of a more landlocked. I grew up coastally my whole life, and surfing was my, and the ocean is my first everything. I would probably do like a week. First week, I would go to mainland Mexico, like Huatulco, you know, surf the right-hand point breaks there, just until my arms, like, and my eyes are bleeding. My arms are noodles and my eyes are bleeding. And then, I don't know, go up to, uh, I don't know, go up to Alaska or something and go check out some bucket listy weird place in the summer that I've never been to. I don't know, something like that. Or just go backpack. I don't know, go do Ray Lakes Loop in the Sierras or whatever. Oh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. But now that I have, now awesome. that I have a, uh, so many dogs, I feel like my outdoor experience is more benefited by bringing the dogs, you know, if they really like to tear it up. So I, I, I've been going away from national parks recently because they're so restricted. 
So some sort of like national forest BLM land where the dogs and in a lake and just rip around and fish and drink beer and hang out, you know. Sounds like good fun. Uh, but have you actually surfed until your eyes bleed? Is that a thing? <laughs> uh, technically, I have. I have a lot of eye problems uh, just from having really light eyes and um, growing up surfing and playing water polo and swimming and just being. Uh, but yeah, I, I like burnt my corneas in eighth grade and had to wear like sun goggles when I surf. And then actually I was doing, um, the, you know, the reboot of Point Break trash movie they did like a, a new movie no keanu obviously obviously no swayze i won't watch um, it but we <laughs> it was is terrible but we did the um the like surf tahiti unit for like six weeks um and by the end of that six weeks i we surfed the last day we had off we had all wrapped and we went and surfed in uh, Morea for like seven hours just beautiful glassy day humpback whales like breaching like you know at the whole time you're like waiting for waves and just surf our entire and then i had a red eye that night and i could not uh i had to have my sunglasses on the whole time because the whites of my eyes were like reddish purple i was just so sun fried i had sunburn eyeballs and i remember it was right remember now when you come into tom bradley or international check-in at the customs there's now there's a digital machine that like takes your photo and you know 15 years ago whatever 10 years ago that wasn't a thing I remember that was the first time I'd seen that and I get off the plane and I go to the kiosk and my passport and I saw like, you know, I had some like borrowed, like super dark Oakley's or whatever. I look like a total speed dealer and I get up to the little kiosk and it's like, remove your hat and glasses. And it like focuses the shot. And I wish I had like the color photo of that, like on my phone, because it was just, I had purple whites in my eyes because it would just, and I, and I remember I had a job, I had a job offer to go shoot some Beck concert the night, like the next night. And I couldn't look at my iPhone screen. So I was like, I can't operate a red from the back of the house. I can't film because my eyes were just broken. So I just like, put, you know, just rested for a few days. But yes, long winded answer. You can sunburn your eyes. Okay. Wow. We don't usually get an opportunity to talk about Bill Murray but I'm looking at a picture of you, Jason Boff and Bill Murray. I kind of know the backstory because I know Jason, obviously, but you want to tell everyone how you ended up uh, with Bill Murray? <laughs> so our mutual friend, uh, Jason Baffa, and I, uh, he had gotten a tap to direct a, a documentary about golf caddies. Um, I think it's called Loopers, a Caddy's Life. Uh, it's on Amazon. or It was on Delta, like, recently when I was – flying i was pretty stoked because you know it's always good to see your your stuff you've worked on on a, on a plane but um and um we were in chicago i think and bill murray has like he doesn't have an agent he just has like some lawyer who he hangs out with and we wanted to uh and the movie was about caddies and you know bill murray's in caddyshack obviously and his brother actually wrote caddyshack and he was a caddy and so it seemed like this, you know, we got to get the interview with Bill Murray. So he was playing the Pro-Am. It was a big, the FedEx Cup, the big golf tournament. And we just basically like haunted, you know, we were in the gallery like filming him. And it's like, he had like Cubs shorts on. Um, and we filmed him, whatever. And then we just waited for him. We had a press pass. So we waited for him in the, in the little press junket. And um, somehow maybe the producer of the movie had gotten a hold of his lawyer and we had first dibs on interviewing him 
before he got into the actual like you know real ESPN and ABC and everything press row. So he comes in and we have Jason and I each have a red on our shoulder and we have a local sound guy with a big boom. And the the interviewer who was a guy who worked in the movie, he was just he was a little starstruck and he started the interview with Bill and we had literally like him for like three or four minutes. And he says, so Bill, really serious. Um, I understand you were used to be a caddy. And Bill goes, what the fuck? Is this a deposition? And he just books it. He just leaves the, the, the interview. And we all just like, uh oh, what just happened? You know, we had like the biggest. So he goes and does the oh, press shit. junket or whatever. And then he comes back and he's like, sorry, I was fucking with you guys. Totally just had us or whatever. And he does, but I mean, that 20 minutes or 25 minutes, like the guy who was running the interview, I thought his face just went white. You know, he just, he just totally thought he'd blown the layup to win the championship or whatever. And then he, uh, and then he comes back and he gave a great interview, which you see in the movie. And at one point in the interview, he's talking about how when he was a caddy, some guy had a big driver, a putter or something, and he rips the, the boom mic, the boom pole out of the boom guy's hand and just starts swinging around like a golf club. And like whacking us, and and he's giving good answers, and we're like, I don't think the audio is going to be that good on this tape, but, you know. <laughs> uh, but and then he he tried to offer Jason and I to go in and have dark and stormies in the clubhouse, and we were like all set, you know, like had our cameras kind of hidden, and then like our, our press pass is hidden, and we get to the door, and there was some like you know it's the FedEx Cup, they can't have any riffraff documentary filmmakers in the clubhouse having dark and stormies. So yeah. That was a little bit of a heartbreak, but. Jason has way better stories of going back to uh, Bill Murray's house in in uh, South Carolina or somewhere and doing trying to get him to do the the voiceover where he just like well, strung him along. Him and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. His great stories where he like he like shine he like would only do one take because he's like I don't have any time and then he's like Oh, you guys never been here and they drove him around Charleston for three hours and like, <laughs> wait. You just want to like hang out, you know. Yeah. You don't want to do a voiceover, which I completely understand. But, yeah, yeah, that's totally uh, pretty cool, man. That's the Bill Murray story. This is awesome. Yeah, Tyler, thank you so much. This has been entertaining and interesting and super fun uh, to have you on the show. So thank you so much for spending your evening with us. Um, if people want to find you, yeah, if people want to find you or follow you on the gram or you know check out your yeah. work, where would they do that? Um, just at I think it's Ty Emmett Instagram. It's like Ty underscore Emmett Instagram or then Tyler Emmett.com. And it's E M M E T T. There's a lot of misspellings of the, of my last name based on like a famous running back and, you know, <laughs> other sorts of people. Well, but, um, but we'll yeah, make sure so we get it right. Be where to find. Yeah. We'll get it in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Oh, cool. Thanks. Thank Tyler. you. Awesome Thanks for having me. Yep. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track almost there is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of for more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On the next episode, we'll be talking to outdoor educator and thru-hiker Karsten Jost. As always, thanks for listening.